Welcome back to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Lucas Stock. And I had my mic muted. I'm Jens Nelson. <laughs> and this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Today is a very exciting episode, one that we have at least, at least in our minds, sort of been working on getting set up for quite a while. Um, we have uh, another interview episode, which we haven't done really in a while, um, and an exciting one at that. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Joseph K. Gordon, professor of theology at Johnson University, to talk about his uh, 2019 book that was uh, published in paperback earlier at the beginning of this year, Divine Scripture in Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. And we've got some questions about the book. Um, I, I'm sure that University of Notre Dame Press is listening. Thank you for sending us um, copies to work through, um, not really review so much as get to just work through and then share in the context of talking with um, Dr. Gordon or Joe. Um, and yeah, before we get to our questions, uh, we obviously wanted to welcome you and also ask for just sort of for people who have not read this work, who aren't familiar with you, um, who are you? What are you up to? What do you do? Uh, any kind of biographical stuff that you uh, feel is 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 worth sharing or is interesting, and then also um, germane to today's topic, sort of what what sort of background do you think is is important for you? What what made you want to write a systematic theology of the Bible? Um, so, yeah. That should be enough for you to work with. So yeah, take it over to you. Right, thank you, Lucas and Jens, for inviting me uh, to come talk with y'all. Um, it's a it's a great uh, privilege to to be with you this evening. Uh, so uh, just brief introduction to myself. Um, I have uh, been teaching here at Johnson University uh, since 2015. Um, I've been at our Tennessee campus since 2019. Uh, before that. Uh, I was uh, in Central Florida. We have a campus in, in uh, the Kissimmee, Orlando area. Uh, and before that, I was at Marquette University, uh, which is where I did my doctoral work. Uh, and at Marquette University is, is where I actually wrote this, this book. Uh, it is a lightly revised version of my doctoral dissertation. And um, how I got to the project uh, is, is a long and winding story, and I'll try to uh, be as concise as, as possible. Um, but whenever I started college uh, at Johnson Bible College in 2003, uh, I had noticed that uh, there was a lot of disagreement about how to read scripture, how to interpret it. And uh, I uh, had this super naive notion that I was going to go to Bible college and put a stop to that. Uh, so I, uh, I I went to uh, a school where I could study uh, most every book in, in both uh, the Protestant uh, Testaments, both uh, both Testaments of the Protestant canon. And I also got um, work in uh, both uh, major biblical languages and Koine Greek and, and Hebrew. And that really helped to address so many uh, difficulties and issues uh, that I had. It also made me a much more responsible reader of scripture. I had memorized a lot of scripture before that point, but I very quickly realized how little I actually understood uh, scripture. 
And all that work was so important, but it, it raised more theological questions for me than it answered. And so uh, I worked as a teaching assistant when I was at Johnson and uh, the professor I worked for and a few of my others encouraged me to consider going on uh, to further study. And so I decided that I was going to go to seminary and continue my theological education. And when I was in seminary at uh, Lincoln Christian uh, Seminary, I discovered uh, the methodological resources of Bernard Lonergan, who's a 20th century Catholic uh, theologian and philosopher, a, a Jesuit priest. And I also uh, discovered the theological interpretation of scripture movement, which is a movement amongst um, a lot of evangelicals and folks from a variety of other Christian traditions uh, who wanted to read scripture in an explicitly theological way. Uh, they found their historical work and the grammatical work and the language work uh, to be helpful like I did, but also still wondered, uh, what does God intend to say to us through the text of scripture today? I had been wondering that question all along. And so I discovered that work. And um, I knew that Karl Barth was uh, sort of uh, an important figure in that work. And uh, and so I wanted to write a thesis on Barth on scripture. Um, but I had a professor, the professor who had introduced me to Lonergan's work, which I had found so helpful, and he encouraged me to study the work of another Jesuit, Henri de Lubac. And so I uh, wrote a master's thesis on de Lubac's uh, work on the pre-modern church's engagement with scripture, uh, medieval exegesis, and uh, he wrote a book on origins, engagement with scripture, and I found it so uh, spiritually and theologically edifying. Um, and so I had these new ideas about how to do theology from Lonergan and also new ideas about uh, what scripture is and how to think it in a theological way. So I went to Marquette and continued those uh, those threads. I got into Marquette under the pretense of doing a dissertation on uh, the theology of history, so theological understanding of history. But by the end of my coursework, it became obvious to me that the, the questions about the Bible were just not going to go away. Uh, and so all of my um, my exams, uh, the bibliographies I prepared were ordered towards questions about hermeneutics, interpretation of scripture, church fathers and the reading of the text, uh, ethics of, of scriptural interpretation, did all this work. And, um, and then it became obvious that I needed to to try to put things together. Um, and so I proposed a, uh, a way of updating what De Lubac calls the ancient fourfold sense of scripture. Uh, Pre-modern Christians read scripture as um, God teaching in multiple ways, teaching things about history, uh, teaching things about Christ and the church, teaching things about ethics and teaching things about spirituality. So I wanted to take these four uh, sort of pedagogical teaching dimensions of scripture and update them. But it became obvious to me that I needed to give an account first of what scripture is before I talk about what to do with it. Uh, and so I wrote this book, uh, A Systematic Theology of Scripture, not what the Bible says um, about itself, uh, which I actually have some significant problems with that sort of phrasing of things, but instead one account of what scripture is, what its nature and purpose are within the work of God in history. 
uh, and Lonergan and, and DeLubach gave me the resources amongst other aspects of my formation to, to put together uh, what, what you have uh, in this book. So. Excellent. Um, so I think we can, we can, our, our questions that, that we've written out are, are more or less chronological through the book, um, or at least, you know, I tried to sort of organize them in order. Um, but we'll also see, you know, if you've listened to any of our other interviews and you're listening today, you'll, you'll see that we, we might, you know, only get through a fraction of what we had prepared and go in different directions, which is why conversation is better than just typing questions into a Google Doc. So um, you've mentioned uh, Henri de Lubac and also especially uh, Bernard Lonergan as far as influences, particularly with regard to, um, as you put it, like the resources to, to bring these pieces together. Um, especially, so I, I don't, I don't know about you, Jens, but for me, like I knew, I knew, I know and knew prior to this book, the name of De Lubac, but I had never even heard of Lonergan's name, much less, you know, familiarity with, with, uh, his work or, or anything like that. And I think, um, you do a really, a really good job in the, in the introduction of, for people like me who had no idea who he was introducing, um, what he has to say, especially with regards to theological method, the way that we are doing theology, the different pieces of work that go into what we call theological work or reflection or, or whatever it might be. Um, and especially uh, his notion of these different functional specialties, um, one of them being what he calls the specialty of systematics, um, it seemed to me was it was was really big in framing your own methodology. Um, so it's a huge. You know, he's got a whole. He's got at least one whole book on theological methods. So obviously this is going to be limited. But but um, I was wondering if you could. I assume there's a lot of people, the kinds of people who listen uh, to us are probably like me, not familiar with his eight specialties. So I was wondering if you could give sort of a bullet point summary. Um, because it it did seem to play such a big role in your own approach um, with this work in particular, and and also in in talking to you just for a little bit, like just more broadly speaking. So, um, if someone said, "What's up with Lonergan's specialties?" how would you how would you answer that in as brief <laughs> a form as possible? Yeah, like you said, it's uh, it's challenging. You mentioned uh, he wrote one major work, uh, Method and Theology, uh, that he he's somewhat well known for. Um, although not amongst all, all sorts of different Christians in, in different theological camps. But uh, that work was actually uh, depended on a ton of, of previous works. So he has three volumes in his collected works entitled Early Works and Theological Method. And uh, he also wrote a book called Insight, A Study of Human Understanding, uh, which he says he wrote because he wanted to write on theological method, but first he needed to work through how it is that human beings can know things. Um, and so all that, all that's there. And also he, he was teaching, um, he's professor of dogmatic theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. And before that he, he taught um, in Toronto and in Montreal and he was teaching theology and he was working out how to do theology as he was teaching it. So all that's actually in the background of this, this one book, Method and Theology. And so what are these functional specialties that he 
he comes up with. Well, theologians do work. Now, theology actually is work. And uh, we actually, uh, any, any good responsible theologian has to do a lot of different kinds of work. And what Lonergan wanted to do was uh, to, to specify differences of kinds of work that theologians do uh, so that they could kind of uh, be uh, limited in focus. Um, he also saw the work as, uh, as actually constructive. Uh, it, it's, not, uh, it's not just a matter of saying uh, and understanding what some figure thought in the past. Uh, the, the work of understanding what God is up to in the world, uh, past, present, and future, is work that every generation of Christian thinkers has to do, um, and, and uh, things change. Uh, things change in history, things develop in history, uh, and so he wanted to, to provide a way of talking about the work that could account for change, account for history, and that could also... Um, really move the work forward. Um, so another key aspect of it is, is that he saw theology as a collaborative enterprise. No one person could do all the work that he identifies in the functional specialties, which again, we'll, we'll get to those in just a second. Um, he, by dividing the work up, by talking about different aspects of it, um, he, he wanted to provide what he called a, a framework for collaborative creativity. Um, so what are these functional specialties and how do they, how do they serve these ends? Well, uh, there, are, there are two sets of four. Uh, the first four have to do with the past. The second four have to do with the present. So first four have to do with the past begins with research. In order to understand what past Christians have, have said, you first got to gather the data. Uh, so this, this is basically akin to textual criticism, right? Um, it, it, is, it is the work of, of getting materials together uh, to then interpret them. Uh, and that, that's actually the next uh, functional specialty. Once you've got materials together, uh, but you, you'd spend your whole entire career getting materials together. But once you've got them together, there's the further question, what, what, do, these, what do these mean? Uh, and that's a historical question as well. It's the question of, of reading any particular figure or document in its context to come within understanding distance of it as ancient as other uh, than us. Uh, but that work is not enough either because um, you don't just have one document or one person to interpret. You have the whole entire history of Christian reflection. So the next functional specialty is history. Uh, and it asks the question of what's going forward in Christian thinking. Uh, so it, it's the work of, of discerning developments, changes within Christian understanding, Christian expression, Christian practice. Uh, and, and that's the, the third. So we have research, interpretation, history. And then the fourth is dialectic. And dialectic has to do with assessing uh, not just mere differences or developments, but with passing judgment on what is going forward positively or where there's actual deficiencies or problems in the history of theological reflection. Um, so, uh, you know, anybody who's taken a, a college history class knows uh, those who don't learn from the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. Right? But also if you don't learn from, from the real achievements of the past, 
then then your your thought, your understanding will be deficient or underdeveloped. And so dialectic is the work of discerning where the developments, where the good uh, actually is or are in the history of Christian thinking and praxis and where there are problems and deficiencies. So that's all work that has to do with the past. But it's not just enough to think Christian uh, thought in, in concert with the past. That's absolutely essential work for theological reasons. Uh, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, Christians have gotten plenty of things right in the past. Our own faith is enriched through engagement with the sources, in particular with Holy Scripture, which we'll talk about tonight. Um, but we also have the work of understanding in the present. And so the next four functional specialties have to do with present understanding of Christian faith. Um, Christians believe certain things about God, about God's world, about what God has done in the world, and these things can be expressed as judgments about reality, divine and created. And these judgments Lonergan calls doctrine. Uh, so doctrine is, is, uh, is the work of stating what a particular Christian community believes about God and God's work in the world, God's redemptive action. That's one thing to state those things, to confess, to believe, and another thing entirely to understand and that work of understanding is systematic theology. So Christians characteristically believe things, believe doctrines. Say, for instance, the doctrine that scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're a Christian, you believe this, uh, or you should believe this. But it's one thing to say that, and another thing to understand what in the world that could possibly mean. How is that so? How does the Spirit of God operate to give us the texts of Scripture and then speak through these particular texts to the church today? Uh, that's the work of systematic understanding of the doctrine of, of inspiration. And, uh, and the, the last functional specialty uh, is, has to do with it is communication. It has to do with the preaching of the gospel. Uh, it has to do with expressing what's understood for the sake of God's redeeming work in the world, which makes sense and which is good news to be communicated. So Lonergan explicitly says uh, that if you don't, if theology doesn't ultimately move into communications, and by that he means the preaching and the dissemination of the gospel, then it's fruitless. Um, so you may have noticed that I've skipped one of the one of the eight. Um, the one that I skipped actually comes before doctrines, and that's foundations. Uh, and foundations for Lonergan, uh, actually in method and theology, he does too much in, in foundations. Um, he, he says that it gives you general categories, which have to do with nature, and special categories, with that, which have to do with God's grace. He also says it has to do with conversion. Um, and, and for him, conversion is multifaceted. Uh, there's religious conversion, moral conversion, and, and intellectual conversion. I don't have time to, to unpack all of this. All I'm, all I'm going to say, though, is that foundations has to do uh, with the work of a theologian taking responsibility for his or her faith. Uh, it, it's, it's the work of uh, assenting to the love of God flooding her heart or his heart. Uh, and how that transforms our moral commitments, religious conversion brings about moral conversion, and how moral conversion actually 
transforms our understanding of understanding, our understanding of, of what human knowledge is and what it is to know. Um, and so foundations really has to do with, uh, with the theologian taking responsibility for, uh, for the work uh, of God in, in herself or in himself. Um, so those are, the, those are the eight, research, interpretation, history, dialectic on the historical side, and then on the present side, foundations, doctrines, systematics, and communications. And each one of these um, has its own specific work, its own specific demands, its own specific focus. There's plenty of work in all of them for all of us to do. Um, for me, these gave me an opportunity to really kind of control the, the question that I was seeking to answer in the book. What is sacred scripture? What is the Holy Bible? That's the question of the book. Uh, again, Christians believe things about it. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God written. It is useful for God's work, teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Right? It's one thing to say these things, to hold these doctrines, and another thing to understand them, um, and especially uh to understand them in the light of what we know about the history of the transmission of, of scripture. Uh, and that, and that's what I, that's what I try to, to, uh, to engage in the book, giving one answer to this question. What is the Bible? Or what do these doctrines mean? Uh, given what we know about the actual material transmission of scripture and God's use of it in Christian communities from um, even the ancient Jewish communities, prior to the New Testament uh, through the present day. Interesting. And I, you know, as, as I read your work, I, I mean, there were many things that jumped out to me. There were, there were a number of things that, as Lucas has said, and as we've said that I was even unfamiliar with. So that, I mean, that's one joy I had in, in reading through this is like, I, I like being introduced to things I don't know. I like being perhaps a little bit caught off guard um, I think most people, um, most of the people that probably listen to our, our our podcast, at least, are people that swim in the circles that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, they they would agree with a lot of 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 what you've said. Um, they, I think most people too would say, you know, the the Bible speaks for itself, or the Bible is clear. Um, the, you know, we have these phrases that we that we like to throw around. You hear them at you know in the the dorm halls late at night when you're talking about some deep theological argument, uh, you know, on Calvinism or whatever it might be. Um, but you you mentioned on page 28 in your book, um, and this is one of the one of the things that I was very curious about myself. Um, but you say that Scripture is not a speaking and acting agent. End quote. Um, are you able to elaborate a little bit on that? Say say some more on on what you mean, what that might mean about scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this, I've, I've gotten some pushback on this, um, but but I I still stand stand by it. Um, scripture's authority is uh, is is actually derivative and instrumental. Um, so uh, folks. I think often we quick to quote from Hebrews chapter four here, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, what word uh, is the, the author of that sermon talking about though? Uh, not a two Testament Christian Bible uh, because uh, he or she, probably he uh, is writing a book that will take its place in that two Testament 
uh, Christian Bible later. Um, and there's actually a process of, of the recognition of, of the canon, if we can even speak of the canon of, of Christian scripture. Uh, so, so a, a really um, uh, quick uh, interpretation of this supposedly clear text uh, actually brings up some thorny, challenging issues. Um, and I ask my students this, this question regularly. Um, what is the word of God? What is the word of God? And, and they characteristically, uh, almost all, uh, first say that it's the Bible, that it is Christian scripture. Um, but the authors of, of scripture don't ever refer to a two testament Bible, uh, a, a book with uh with with books in it with two covers. Uh, any times that any, any any author use that language, they're not referring to that. They're referring to the word of the Lord that comes to the prophet, which is some something uh really incredible to think about, some mysterious ecstatic experience of, of God's inspiration. Um, when they are talking about texts, uh, they're talking about the ancient Jewish scriptures that we Christians know as, as the Old Testament. But again, not a book between two covers. Um, and then when we get into uh, uh, the, the New Testament with its emphasis on uh, Christ's uh, comprehensive final work, the authors of scripture characteristically use this language to refer to Jesus. Uh, so John 1, the, fa the famous uh, prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And uh, uh, the word there is is the son. Uh, it's, it's Jesus Christ, the one through whom the father created all things. Uh, so uh, the one who the authors of the New Testament say is God's final word to, to go back to the Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews. God spoke in many ways to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. God's speech uh, in the second in the second person, the father's speech in the second person of the son is the fulfillment of the scriptures. It, it, it is their meaning. Uh, and so um, it's really important, I say, uh, to, to, to think this carefully, like, I think it is wholly appropriate to call scripture the written word of God, um, and even to call it the word of God, uh, just, just full stop. Uh, but it, it's not the one, th scripture, the Bible, is not the one through whom the Father created all things. Uh, the, uh, the, the holy scriptures are of fundamental importance, are, are a gift from God, indispensable for Christian faith and life, but they're not God. Um, and, and if you get the relationship between these confessions wrong, you, you get yourself in, in big trouble. Um, one of these is God and the other one is, is a book. Um, and if you put something in God's place, even if it's a book that God gives you, that's what God wants you to have. But that thing is not God. The authors of scripture have a word for that. And it's idolatry. And it's not something that any, any Christian uh, should want to practice. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's one angle of it. There's, there's a, an explicitly theological reason for this. Uh, scripture is, is the written word of God. It is uh, expressive of, of the word's authority. Um, Christ's authority comes through the, the written word. Um, but the other angle on this that is equally important is, uh, is a hermeneutical 
one. Uh, it, it's 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 uh, the issue of interpretation. We have no access to scripture apart from ourselves, apart from our subjectivity, apart from our formation and malformation in whatever Christian tradition that we come from. Um, and our Christian traditions uh, do all kinds of important work in helping us to love scripture and to read it well. Uh, but we also characteristically develop blind spots uh, that keep us from being able to recognize things that are, are in the text. But then we say scripture clearly says, the Bible clearly teaches. Um, and, and that's just not, I think, and I don't have any authority to like really stop people from saying the Bible says, but I think that that, uh, that situation uh, should call us all to, to a great deal of hum humility. Uh, because when we're saying the Bible says, uh, what we actually are doing is presenting our perspective uh, on what the Bible says. Um, what if your perspective is inadequate to scripture? And by the way, it is. doesn't matter who you are. Um, my, the, the, there, there are all kinds of challenges embedded in this. When we talk about the clarity of scripture in, in my classes, um, I tell my students, there's all kinds of things that are crystal clear in the text that we just don't want to deal with. Uh, think about the end of, of Second Peter. Uh, Peter, somebody writing his name and authority, writes, Paul wrote a bunch of stuff. It's super hard to understand. Uh, that's clear. It is clear from the Holy Spirit through the author of this epistle that Paul is hard to understand. So if you are, if you are certain that you know what Paul is talking about at every moment, I'm pretty sure that, first of all, you're not carefully reading Paul. And second, you're not you're not heeding the, the witness of this this other text that is that's right here. Um, in Isaiah 55, uh, we read God's ways are not our ways and thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, uh, and Paul's uh, famous hymn to love in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about how we see through a mirror darkly or glass darkly. Um, and in the fogginess of our understanding, uh, the unclarity that's present to us in our mortal life is not going to be extinguished by the, the uh, supposed crystal clear, clarity of scripture. We'll continue to see through a mirror darkly until we see God face to face, until we know as we are known, and, and that's not yet. Um, so there's all these, these clear texts that suggest to us, I think, we ought to have more humility about such things. And also, uh, th th this is a fundamental theological importance, it's, and it's what I began with. Um, scripture is is not a person of the Trinity. Um, I, I think so many uh, Bible-centric folks who develop a, a, a good love for Scripture um, also develop some habits of thinking about it and practicing it, using it, um, that are really dangerous. Um, I, I mean, I, I've been in churches that are not creedal, which is uh, interesting, but because every church has its statement of faith on its website, right? Which another word for a statement of faith is a, is a creed, I, I believe, right? Um, but I've I've been to churches, multiple churches that had these things listed, and the first three items are belief in God, the Father, Creator, Jesus Christ, His Son. It's not always clear whether. He's recognized as fully divine, which I have a problem with. And then the third clause is not in the Holy Spirit, but is in Holy Scripture. 
Um, I joke with my students about how functionally uh, many Bible-centered Protestants have a trinity of God, Jesus, and the Bible, um, which is all kinds of wrong. Um, I, nobody's baptized in the name of God, Jesus, and the Bible. I, nobody becomes a Christian in this triune name, uh, but, but that our Christian practice and worship and prayer functionally reflects this trinity, uh, God, Jesus, and the Bible, not Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it, it is a major uh, intellectual and spiritual problem. So yes, scripture is the word of God written, uh, but it's not the second person of the Trinity. I've also heard sermons preached on John 1 that see the word there as referring to the Bible, which is just absurd. Um, but again, like I said, I, I think that there's some really dangerous things in in um, Bible-centric Protestant formation. And uh, I... Um, will give, I, I firmly believe, I, I, scripture is clear on this. Uh, not many should become teachers. Those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is my life verse. Um, it, it's a constant um, uh, call to, to humility. Um, like I can't let my students leave uh, the care that God has granted me for them uh, without me very strongly uh, forcing them to recognize the, these things that, that, uh, um, uh, that idolatry is not, it's not, it's not, it just because you make the Bible, which is a good thing, you're idle, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean uh, you're, you're good to go. Um, mm -hmm. we, we need to think scripture in relationship to the God who, who gives it to us. Uh, so it's not a fourth person. We don't believe in a quaternity. Um, it's not the second person. So what is it then? It's given by the third person, um, but the, the the works of the triune God are one. So Father, Son, and Spirit all give us scripture, and it's given in the service of, of the work of the Son. Um, and, um, and and this just changes changes the approach to, to the text theologically uh in, in a pretty dramatic way. Uh, but but I think we need I think we need this change. Uh so we need I I I I, I want to make I want to put it more strongly than that. Um, this it doesn't it doesn't matter what I think. Um, Christians should not put something in God's place that's that's not God. Um, so even if it's even if it's the Bible, even if it's sacred yeah. scripture, just don't do it. Don't commit an idolatry. In my class, mm -hmm. I say no. I don't want to, I, I I don't want any idolatry, no blasphemy, no heresy. Uh, an order from greatest, gravest negative significance to least. Like heresy, you know, is is problematic, but like blasphemy and idolatry are are much worse. So yeah, they feel more intentional. I mean, we can we we're all wrong about something. So in some sense, we probably carry some heresy. But yeah, it's 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 funny. It, I mean, maybe not funny. That's not, maybe not the right word. It's it's ironic that you mentioned that. You know, in, in before we hit record here, we were kind of just chatting and getting to know each other. And I mentioned that I, I worked as a youth pastor and that I no longer do. And there, there were many reasons that that led to that, me leaving that, that, that job, that position, that church. But one of the big ones was like week in and week out. Like when I was getting ready to go up and, and speak to, to kids, to children, to youth, you know, sixth through 12th grade, I was just always struck at the like, who do I think I am to, to get up and to say things 
that like I could very well be giving giving them heresy, <laughs> could very well be teaching them things that are that are that are incorrect, that are false. And like, even though I have all the good intentions, like I'm not trying to be malicious. I'm trying to do my my darndest here and and honor God. But like there was a uh, a fear, like a, like a an actual trembling. And I was like, yeah. I, I I didn't think I had it in me to to do that vocationally um, much longer. And so um, that's one of those things that, you know, I wonder and we have so many pastors in in a, in a country like the United States. I mean, I live in a, a small town that has like six churches or seven churches. So, you know, there's at least seven or six pastors. And you think about all the communities as you start to expand from there. And, um, you know, I wonder, I think, I, I mean, I have to imagine that most people are good intentioned, um, that they mean well. Um, but does that excuse perhaps negligence or uh, it mishandling absolutely does of the not, word? In my, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that comes to mind as you were talking, rearranging the Trinity in this way is is just how traditional in in all the best senses of that word and and and, and ancient and just Christian that concern that you raise is. I think even just the ordering of the Nicene Creed in particular is three clauses, roughly: Father, Son, Spirit. Um, and there's not a there's not a dedicated clause about scripture like you were talking about with the with the classic sort of Bible centric uh, statement of faith. Um, there's there's the Father, there's the Son, and the Spirit because we're talking about God. The the this this is who we believe in is is this Trinity. Um, but within within the creed is according to the scriptures. He he was crucified and rose and and ascended. And I think that's such a um, an interesting pattern to think about in light of this kind of error that, that you're talking about and that you're raising is, um, uh, I, I think, a potential objection and, and um, probably a very common one to to something like what you're saying is what you're saying is good. It makes sense of. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. But we don't want to we don't want to lower our view of scripture or we don't want to in, in in trying to avoid that extreme. You know, I, don't, I still don't want to say what you're saying for fear of denigrating scripture. Um, but it's interesting to think of, well, what does it actually mean to denigrate scripture? And like you're saying, I think to put it to put it in the place of God, you know, if it had a mind of its own, I don't think it would want to be in the place of God. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's um, just super. It's super. It was it's very early in the book. I think we mentioned it's on page like 28 and, and it's super. um depending on depending on on how you're approaching it it has the potential to be very provocative but really like in the context of of actually you know not just pulling out a a quote from a from a book but also just just talking with you like it's i i don't think it's that provocative um really for 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 people who genuinely care about about our faith and and being faithful to scripture like you're saying um the some of the clear stuff in scripture is exactly the kinds of things that ought to be sort of scaring us into a little bit more humility, if nothing else. Um, but um, I do think that that's extremely, extremely helpful and um, not just, yeah, extremely helpful theologically as, as sort of a, almost a, a, a sort of presupposition foundation type thing. Uh, and I think related to that, speak to, speaking about just the humility of, recognizing our own limitation when we come to scripture 
and also recognizing that scripture is not God. It's not the eternal, well, you know, immutable, uh, you know, self-existent being that we're worshiping is the reality. And you get into some of this in, in your chapter, one of your chapters on sort of what we do, like what scripture is, what, what, when we hold up a Bible today, like what are we actually holding and, and what is the background and how did we get it and all that kind of stuff um, without getting too far into those details. Um, there's, there's more than just like, we're not, we're not Muslims. The, the Bible didn't fall from the sky as we have it. Um, there is a process of writing and at, at the bare minimum, uh, regardless, you know, without getting into these debates at the bare minimum, there is a several millennia long, or, or I guess, millennia and a half long process of writing, not to get into other issues of translating and redacting and all of that kind of thing. Um, so how do we think about as people living in the 21st century who do have Bibles? How do we think about as Christians? How do we think theologically? about the relationship between scripture as the word of God written and contained between two covers for us and the rule of faith. I think of, I think of things like the apostles creed, the Nicene creed and, and the early statements of, of what would, we would come to call orthodoxy from the, from the beginnings of the church. But even, even going back, I think of, of something as, as old as the Shema and the role that it played in, in the Hebrew, um, life and, and religion of, of the Old Testament and continuing on um, that are not necessarily written down, you know, texts that we can point to um, in the sense that something like the Shema was something that you were taught to confess. Something like the creed is something that you are taught for the purpose of confession, but it's not a written text, especially if you're a slave, a Roman slave in the second century AD, you're not going to be reading anything, let alone uh, the 66 books of, of our Protestant canon or whatever. So how do we think about the relationship between scripture, the rule of faith, and, and all, all that goes into that, um, and the actual like events and, and the transcendent realities that scripture and the rule of faith and, and the confessions and worship of the church are actually pointing to? Um, let me know if that was unclear. I know I, I tend to ramble, but I, well, it's, I mean, that's, it's the question of the, uh, I, it's the question of the whole book. I mean, um, so, I mean, I, I, I just, just by way of summary, I can say um, first chapter, we've talked about some of the methodological issues that I raise. Um, my approach is to give a systematic theology of scripture um, we, we then talked about this issue of, of what the Bible says or its clarity or whether it's an agent. I think that it doesn't say anything, uh, that it's that it's not uh, an agent and that it, that it is both clear and unclear. It's clear that it's not clear. Um, so that so then where do we go? Well, well, I argue that the, the starting place uh, is to think scripture uh, within the faith of of the church. Um and uh, so the second chapter actually begins with the confessions of the earliest Christians about God's work in history through Christ and the Spirit, the Father's work in history through through the Father's two hands, to use Irenaeus's language. 
uh, and how those convictions about God and God's work in history uh, develop in what's known as the rule of faith. So Irenaeus and Origen and Augustine are three figures that I pick out who all give a summary of what Christians believe about God's work in history uh, and then interpret scripture within that summary. Um, so they don't say all the same things. Uh, the, the rule of faith actually itself develops. Um, it it be, becomes more formalized, I would say, uh, in the, the creeds, the apostles, but especially the Nicene Creed and then uh, some post-conciliar uh, confessions as well. Uh, but, but the church thinks things about God, expresses these things about God, catechizes people into this faith, and scripture doesn't even exist as a canonical collection between two covers while this is this is all happening. Um, so, so that's where I want to start with, with the faith of, of the church. But what I propose is not to go back and sort of like think exactly what Irenaeus or Origen or Augustine thinks about the rule of faith. The question today is, uh, is not a historical question. It's a question about who God is and what God has has done, and so I argue that this is this is what we need to do. We need we need to get straight what we think. Um, and I when I say we, I'm I'm I mean uh, we collectively Christians. Period. But also I mean you, uh, whoever you are, in whatever Christian tradition you're a part of, um, you, you need to take responsibility for what you think about God, about who God is, and about what God has done. And that's getting doctrinal statements about God straight uh, and about God's work in the world. So that's what I do in chapter three, provide a, a framework that's uh, loosely structured by the Nicene Creed, the confessions of the Nicene Creed, which I take to be a classical expression of Christian faith in the God who creates and redeems the world, whose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I build a, a context for thinking about God and God's work in the world that's, I think, the most important context in which Scripture is located. Right? Scripture is not God, uh, but but it it is something that God brings into being. Whatever we're going to say about the processes of its historical transmission, redaction, translation, whatever, it's something that God brings into being within God's work in history. But God's work in history is the context. Um, and so chapter three gives one account of, of how we, we can think fruitfully about that work, uh, about God uh, calling creation into being, which is not God, um, which uh, is contingent and dependent on God for its existence, uh, and about God ordering creation um, and, and working within creation in particular through the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit, through Christ's work in the Incarnation, through the Spirit uh, taking up Christ's work um, and, uh, and applying it throughout the world. But this gives a basis for thinking about God's work in history, uh, the most fundamental context of, of Christian scripture. So um, the rule of faith and the creeds are not replacements for scripture. Um, they're not things that, um, I, I don't think that scripture teaches them in a strict sense. I don't think it makes sense to talk about them in that way. Um, I think that they're, uh, 
to go back to Lonergan's functional specialties of history and dialectic, um, the, the Apostles' Creed happens, the Nicene Creed happens, the, the rule of faith uh, happens. Uh, what's going forward in that? What I think is going forward in that is that the church is discerning what it must say to actually be faithful uh, to, to uh, belief that that God has made known the mystery of his will, planned for all times to reconcile all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. I think that the, the creeds uh, crystallize this, bring this together. Um, so uh, no, no author in the New Testament says the Nicene Creed or could have even anticipated it. And that's not a problem. Um, uh, when you get the creed, you don't get to dispense with scripture. Uh, scripture is still an instrument that God gives to con to continually do God's redemptive work in the world. Um, it's just that the that the creed um, gives you a concise expression of of doctrinal judgments, beliefs about God and and who God is and what God has done, um, and that's the context, the divine context of of Scripture. So, um, so that gets us through chapter three. So, um, the other, the other, we, uh, we could get to, we could get to the other stuff from other, other questions. So let you all, um, interject and, uh, and, and, and raise whatever issues about what I just said you, you want to. All right. Well, um, I guess another another question that comes to mind from from our perspective, um, you you've already sort of mentioned we've it's it's come up in the conversation, um, but this Lucas said you know the the Bible didn't just fall from the heavens, it didn't plop out of the sky and land in somebody's lap, and you know now we have some transmission of that. Like we, this is a a a um, you know a document that is has in some sense lived uh, throughout history. It is. Uh, it, it, you know the, the what we call the Old Testament was part of the 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 Hebrew life and and world and um, in our context as as Christians today like it it serves as a um, you know the, the 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 sort of the beginning to what what comes when when Christ comes to fulfill what was what was written in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament and um, so I think so many people today whether we know the context or not of of how we even have what we have today um you know i i wonder uh, i have some i'm so sorry i have so many thoughts just like rolling yeah, through yeah. my head as i'm trying to trying to get to where we're going but like you know someone picks up their esv their csb their nlt their niv we even those english translations that we have today in our pews in our churches in your home maybe you have one of each on your shelves um the way that the the translators and the people that worked to get even there was uh, a a long and arduous task. It wasn't something that was done in an instant. Um, there's there's presuppositions, there's context, there's um, theological thinking, all these things that we're already sort of talking about and discussing that goes into then what you have and what you receive. And so, how how should we think about you know the Bible? Um, how how should we think about the possible, as Lucas wrote in this question, the possibly startling amount of variety and fluidity of the Bible prior to the advancement of the printing press? I mean, you have to imagine five, six hundred years ago or whatever, like before we have modern printing and the ability to to duplicate a page as quickly. 
Um, things were done by hand, by scribes, by people who were who were taking a text and painstakingly. I mean, think, open your Bible, look at all the little words on that page. And I want you to just do one page, yeah. let alone the whole thing. So what? how, how should we think about the Bible in, in, in that light? Yeah. Well, the first thing we should do is actually acknowledge uh, acknowledge it and acknowledge the the, the messiness of it. Um, you you know you pose this as a as a challenge as an exercise. Like try to copy a page of scripture yourself and not make any mistakes. Um, and uh, and then just imagine that happening um, in literally uh, a dozen ancient languages for the first. 1400 years of the existence of the New Testament and for almost a millennium more than that for some Old Testament texts. So how should we think about this? Well, we should. Uh, We should think about it in the first place. Uh, I think that uh, another danger in um, Bible-centric Christian practice is to just take Scripture for granted. Um. You know, I ask you, what's the Bible? You point to a book on your shelf, but you you just, Jens, you just named all these different translations. Like, is the ESV just as much a Bible as the NRSV, as the NLT? And what about the message? Uh, what about, uh, you know, I, 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 I make this joke periodically, but like, so there's just now been a, a revision of the NRSV. Um, so, but like the NRSV, is a new revised standard version. But if you had a revised standard version, why would you need a new one? But the revised standard version is a revision of a standard version. And the standard version was a revision of the authorized version, the King James version, right? So why did why does this keep happening? Like in, in KJV only folks, like they lose their mind over this stuff. Like you've, you've taken a bunch of stuff out of scripture. And um, so I'm actually gonna say something in their favor. Um, I think that, we have, um, and I think we should have, um, because now we we are aware of the ancient transmission of the text in a much more comprehensive historical way, because we've literally discovered manuscripts that that uh, medieval folks did not have access to, um, and this is going to keep happening. So when is when is the history of the Bible? going to be done being written? Um, When is the work of textual criticism, which is the work of comparing manuscripts to discern how changes come into the tradition, when is that going to be done? Um, Is the canon actually comprehensively closed? And when did that happen? Like, I ask my students this question. And, um, you know, part of a malformation of of American religiosity is uh, this received idea that the Council of Nicaea closed the canon in 325 uh, and also invented the divinity of Jesus. So you can thank Dan Brown for those two dumb, completely historically inaccurate things. But like there wasn't an ecumenical council that said which books belonged in scripture and which ones didn't until Trent. And we Protestants were not on board with that. And none of the Eastern Christians were there. So was that really an ecumenical council uh like so what is what is the canon uh what what are what are its confines um uh you're, you're asking i i should have said this at the very beginning but but i address these questions in chapter five of the book um and um you know uh 
uh, Genji mentioned Lucas using the word startling. Like I've startled a lot of people with, with that chapter. Like I, my dissertation co-directors were both world-class theologians. Uh, one of them was a trustee of Lonergan's estate, um, Bob Doran. Uh, he's, he's gone on to his reward. Um, and the other was uh, D. Stephen Long, who's a, a Methodist, who's at Southern Methodist University now. Uh, but they both independently said that that chapter was overwhelming. World-class theologians. But the history of scripture is overwhelming. Uh, Its messiness is overwhelming. Um, You know, we don't have the good fortune of discovering a Bible ready-made on golden tablets buried in upstate New York. Um, Like, is it okay to read read scripture and translation? Some of my students aren't sure about that. Um, they, they think we need to go back to the original languages, but I can't get them to take the original languages while they're here. Um, and so there's this sort of like double-mindedness about it. Um, but it is okay. It is okay to read scripture and translation. It's the only access we have to most of Jesus's teaching. Um, Koine Greek, not Aramaic. Um, the early church's access to the ancient Jewish scriptures was almost entirely through Koine translations, not through Hebrew. And very few of the church fathers knew anything about Hebrew. Uh, uh, Christians have always been okay with translation. Um, and uh, this is something that we have to make peace with. Like From the theological perspective I set up in chapter 3, uh, none of this historical situation is a surprise to God. And none of it's a problem for God. It might be a problem for us, but it's not a problem with Scripture or a problem with God if we can't actually recognize the Bible uh, in, in the way that God has given it to us. And and I would even argue that, that that requires, I think, a disciplining of our language in talking about the Bible Right. You say this language, say the Bible to somebody who's Jewish. Uh, whenever they talk about, when they talk about their scriptures, they don't refer to it, as, uh, the text as the Old Testament. They refer to it as the Tanakh or as just the Bible. But it doesn't have the New Testament in it. Right. Say the Bible to a Roman Catholic, uh, to, to somebody who's Eastern Orthodox or Taiwahedo Ethiopic Orthodox. Um, their Bibles have more books. Uh, than our Protestant Bible. And uh, again, this is not a surprise to God. It, it's a surprise to to a lot of Protestant Christians and, and to other Christians and other church traditions as well. Um, I've come around to, um, to, to really leaning into this because I just don't know any other way to do it. But I think that the Bible is the history of Christian scripture. If, if you're going to talk about the Bible or the, the, the scriptures that God gives, then you need to think about everything that God has given to Christian communities uh, from prior to uh, the emergence of the Christian faith in the first century through the present. Um, and so you're going to be talking about a lot of texts um, and a lot of messiness and transmission and even um, striking tensions and, and even contradictions. Um, but but again, this is not something outside of uh, that, that's escaped the notice or the providence of God.
it's not something that I think we have to think as being a problem for inspiration. Um, every Christian community throughout Christian history has read the scriptures that it's received or has heard the scriptures that it's received as coming from God. And I don't think that that's, that's a problem. I don't think that that needs to be a problem. If there's a problem, it's not with the history, it's not with the situation, it's not with God, it's with our limited um, assumptions about what the Bible has to be, uh, which actually won't stand up to the scrutiny of, of studying the texts. Um, so Augustine already dealt with this problem at the end of the 4th and to the beginning of the 5th century. Um, and, I, and I mentioned this in, in the chat, I actually end chapter 5 discussing this. Uh, Jerome was translating uh, the Old Testament texts into Latin, to what would become the Vulgate. And Augustine was like, stop, stop doing that. Stop paying attention to the Hebrew, because uh, the church has always depended on the Greek text, the Vetus Latina, the Old Latin was a translation of the Greek. It was great for the communities. Um, Augustine heard this one story about a congregation, like almost rioting because uh Jerome's translation of one weird word in Jonah was not what the community accepted. And so they lost their minds about it. So Augustine's like, you're scandalizing everybody. Stop, stop doing this. But they go back and forth in correspondence. And uh, by the end of his life in the city of God, um, Augustine comes around to Jerome's arguments about the importance of the Hebrew, but he doesn't want to give up the the Vetus Latina or the Septuagint. And Augustine didn't know Greek and he didn't know Hebrew. So he, one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers in Christian history, didn't even have a time for the biblical languages. And also he didn't have, you know, Mounts' Greek grammar or whatever uh, to aid him. But he's reading in translation and he affirms Jerome's project is good. We need the Hebrew. But he also affirms that the Septuagint and the Vetus Latina traditions are good. And so he says that the spirit could have given them all and has given them all to teach the church, even whenever they say things that are in, in direct con uh, contradiction. Uh, and, then he, and then he gives some examples about numbers, differences of numbers in the Old Testament. Uh, and, he, and he comes up with some sort of fantastical allegorical interpretations of those. But I think that the point that he makes there as unassailable from, from a Christian perspective, we need to make pay, peace with this situation, that this is how God has done things and not in some other way. And that we can see the entire history of the transmission of scripture as useful for God's work in history. Um, I, th I think that that's what we, that's what we need to, that's what we need to do. Um, and it, uh, at the very least, people need to stop taking scripture for granted and actually study the, the transmission of the text, just even at all. Um, so I'm not sure, uh, you know, folks can end up in different places than than where I do ultimately on that on that issue. Um, I would like to talk to anybody who thinks that they have come up with a uh, responsible and faithful way that's that's alternative to this perspective. It's not because I think my perspective is infallible. I just don't know where else to go. And, and also, I've come to see the messiness of the text as an aid to, to spiritual and theological formation, which is what the text is for.
teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. The scriptures you've known, uh, Paul, Paul an author, writes to Timothy from birth, they're able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And they are, all of them. So I believe in plenary verbal inspiration. I just believe that it extends to the entirety of the transmission history of scripture, both what we know of that and also what we don't, but may yet come to know. When some Bedouin shepherd boy throws a rock into a cave at Qumram, uh, whenever we dig up a trash heap in Oxyrhynchus and learn that Koine Greek is not a special divine language, but actually the vulgar language of the people, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the God of Jesus Christ, uh, who we who we know uh, through through God's humility and condescension, works through these these humble texts. And they're sufficient, wholly sufficient, divinely, eminently useful for the work that God intends for them. Yeah, what I love just listening to to how you answer the question is to reevaluate, you know, I say we, um, obviously, and that's not necessarily everybody who's listening, but as evangelical American, uh, you know, 21st century, very Bible folk, you know, moody Bible grads, right? Where the, the Bible Talks is Bible college. Yeah. Exactly. The Bible is our middle name uh, to challenge some of those ways of approaching scripture and ways of understanding or, or just straight up not understanding or ignoring the history of scripture itself as, 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 um, as a record, as an object, as, as books and book and a book um, leads to reformulating something like, like, like um, maybe, you know, I, I got to see your facial expression, the listeners don't, but so maybe a little tongue in cheek, uh, verbal plenary inspiration, but more, uh, but, but that's not sarcasm. Like it, mm -hmm. it, to, to go through, to go through the work and to sort of, come to a realization as you've explained very clearly of of ways that we might need to reformulate this or that uh practical or doctrinal commitment that we have um at the end of the day actually leads to a higher view of what scripture is doing because it's what you're trying to do is communicate a theology of the Christian Bible that points us back to what the Bible is pointing us to. Like you said, second Timothy three sixteen, and, and we could go on and on and, and, and we have, but um, I know we've been talking for a, a while at this point. So I want to try to wrap up. And I think maybe one way to, to wrap it up is another one of, of these little phrases that jumped out at me um, that I think we don't need to spend too much time on because I think you've already done a really good job of, of giving us the sort of the content of, of what you mean by this. But one of the things that um, or one of the phrases that you use that really stood out to me was was this idea of scripture is being a, a pedagogical tool that God uses. And again, it's one of those things where maybe someone might read that and think, oh, well, calling scripture a tool lowers scripture. But like I just said, and, and like we've just heard, um, that's not really at all the approach that that that's here in this in this work that you've written or just the 
the, the possible answers to these questions that, that you've been thinking through and, and sharing. Um, but I, so I guess without, without going too much into just rehashing things you've already said, is there anything else you'd want to add to this idea of what we might gain might be the way to ask it from thinking about or recognizing the ways in which, because scripture is not God and scripture is not this static, um, ex nihilo thing that just appeared to us. Um, but it is this artifact of history, divine, divinely given artifact of, of human history, uh, that with all the messiness that comes to that, what might we gain from conceiving of scripture as this divine pedagogical tool um, that you haven't already touched on earlier in, in our conversation? Two things I'll, I'll say in the first ones, I'm not trying to be cute with this, but um, I, I think that, that this really, to, to do this, to think of scripture as a, as a tool would actually put us into a position of, of approaching it in a way that's a lot more similar to how the authors of the New Testament approach the text. Like Paul in Galatians literally calls the law a pedagogue. He, he literally calls it, calls it a, a teacher. To, so like, uh, you know, he, it's um, the personalness of, of it is not lost in using that language, using the language of, of, of pedagogy. Um, and I, I intend this to be thought in, in a personal way because God's the teacher uh, that, that, that gives us um, the tool. But by all the language of, of the New Testament authors about the usefulness of, of Scripture, I think, um, it just calls out for, for, uh, for this way of thinking about it. Um, it, it, it is, uh, um, it's also quite liberating um, to, to think it this way. Um, we, uh, we use tools. People will use scripture. People do inevitably mention all those pastors ministers preaching in those those small congregations they're doing something some things with the text all the time and i think thinking of it in this way uh would help us to affirm that that's actually what what we what we need to to do um paul says to the church in corinth that they're stewards we are stewards of the mysteries of god first corinthians 4 which is just kind of insane to think about. Right, so we have to steward this gift of scripture that God gives to us. We're going to use it. We have to, to steward it. It's just going to happen. Um, but that doesn't license us to do with it whatever we, what, whatever we want. That, in fact, is actually, I think, almost unconsciously, naively, how folks in Bible-centric traditions do approach the text, though. Uh, they, they take it as license to justify everything that they're going to think and do, no matter what. Um, if we think it as a tool, as a pedagogical tool given by God, I think that should heighten our sense of, of responsibility uh, and, and should heighten, uh, heighten our humility lower us in humility, I don't know, which increase our humility um, to recognize like what we do with this is a fundamental 
importance, the uses that will will put this to um, have have uh, eternal significance. Um, that we sh should think we should escape judgment is 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 absurd. Um, and so uh, uh, we could we could take better responsibility uh, for the work and also recognize um, again I I, I want to I want to think this in a wholly personal way God is the one giving it always and we're needing to receive and the reception requires discernment on our part uh, there's personal um, community work amongst the body of Christ, uh, and not just local congregations, although I think the local congregation is really important, but also the body of Christ historic. Like we have to do the work of discernment, of how to use this, what God might intend for us to, to do with it um, in concert and community with others who have gone before us, others uh, who we submit to now, others who are serving even now. Uh, and so I, I think that um, to think it as a as a tool, as a pedagogical tool, um, could could heighten our uh, our sense of responsibility for receiving this from God and wielding this uh, wielding divine authority, stewarding the mysteries of God in a way that actually uh, is not in opposition to what God wants to do, but instead is is in the service of God's redemptive, reconciling work. Um, so again. Like back to, to to the beginning of of uh, of our conversation tonight. Like I had this idea, I had seen people misusing scripture, and I was going to put a stop to that. And I'm I'm still actually about that same that same motivation. It's 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 not a good thing for people to to misuse and abuse scripture. Uh, part of the the way we can we can stop that is to take responsibility for the fact that using is going to happen. So we need to use. We need to build in accordance with with the use God intends, in accordance with what God is building. So, yeah. Well, that was really good. I mean, do you have any final thoughts, Lucas? Any 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 last words of wisdom here, or shall we nope. uh, begin our descent? I think I think uh, nothing else that I want to say. I don't know um, before we do our like formal outro. If there's any concluding thoughts that we haven't gotten to, uh, want to give you the final word, um, Joe. Before we before we sign off for the night, I uh, I don't don't have anything I think else to say except uh, just thanks once again for having me. Thanks for your engagement. Uh, good questions and uh, for your patience with me uh, in, in reading the book in the first place, but then deciding you wanted to continue subjecting yourself to my thoughts on, on these things. Uh, I don't take What's it lightly. Um, and uh, so thank you to both of you. Yeah. Thank you. And it, it's funny. I remember, I remember when, when the, when the paperback came out reading some of the the Amazon reviews and just some of the like, you know, people giving rave reviews, but like man, this is not for the faint of heart, or this is, you know, this isn't your just sit back on a Sunday and chill type of read. Like this is, this is, uh, it's it's rigorous, it's it's theological, it's academic, um, 
But I think in in a sense too, though, so is reading God's word. I don't think we can expect to come to it flippantly and and expect to understand everything in one sitting and you know some casual novel that we enjoy and you know whatever. It's a it's a serious task. So we we thank you for for the work, for the time, for the energy, for the the, the resources and money and sleepless nights and whatever else went into and continues to go into to doing this because this is I mean this is this is the in some sense, this is the, uh, or at least helps in living this life. Like if we're going to live on this world in the world that God created and, and, and seek to love him well, to, to follow him faithfully, like it, it takes this type of work. So we, we thank you and commend you for that. Um, I do have one final question. We like to throw this one out to everybody that we interview um, Lucas and I are both lovers of books. Obviously, we we read your book and we we see behind you on the video screen a plethora of books. Um, so the the question that we like to kick out is: What are you reading currently? Is there a book that you're really enjoying, or perhaps one that you hope to read? Maybe one you read earlier this year. I know you know life's busy and all, but is there a book that you're really excited about, or one that you're enjoying? Um, I got I've got some stuff at home. One of them has a swear word in the title, so I won't mentioned it but the, the subtitle is on the female of the of the species it's a it's a book on biology and and ecology of female uh, animals and uh, so i have an interest in theology and ecology theology and, and animals so if you you guys may have seen on twitter that, that i uh post snakes regularly i'm a certified amateur herpetologist huh. um so uh i'm also reading a book on pests like what what a pest is and how humans create pests. Both of those are outstanding. So in terms of theology, though, uh, I I can't recommend highly enough this book by William P. Brown, uh, who's a professor emeritus of Old Testament at uh, Columbia, I think is where he where he was. But the title is The Seven Pillars of Creation, The Bible, Science and the Ecology of Wonder. Uh, it's the best book that I've read on science and faith issues on, 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 uh, engaging the, the testimony of, uh, the old Testament text in particular, um, of scripture on, uh, nature, the natural world creation, um, and also, um, uh, what, uh, value scientific work has for, for Christian faith. So, uh, that one is outstanding. Um, I'll make another recommendation too. It's a book that I require for my theological anthropology class. Um, if any folks are interested in Lonergan, um, I'm writing an introduction to Lonergan, which I would recommend to you, although I can't promise you when that will be available. Uh, pray for me if you think about it. But in the meantime, you could read uh, Mark T. Miller's The Quest for God and the Good Life, uh, Lonergan's Theological Anthropology. Um, it is uh, it is just a super rich um compelling account of of what human beings are um in relationship to god and um what our role is in in god's creation so uh i would recommend those so i did think of something else to end with too i asked my students uh when will we be done interpreting scripture when will the work of interpretation be finished um that question i think should also uh kind of situate our approach to, to the Bible, uh, to be able to, to recognize that the answer to the question is, 
not until Christ returns. Uh, understand the work of understanding the work uh, that that's involved in theological reflection will not be done uh, until then. Um, changes shifts our perspective, I think, in fruitful ways on on what Scripture is and um, the gift that it is, uh, and what what it uh, is for, what its purposes are in God's economic work of, of redeeming not just us but all creation in Christ and through the spirit. That's good. Well, again, Joe, thank you. We, we really, really, really appreciate having you. Thank you for your book. Um, if, if you guys have, have enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure you have, but uh, you should definitely check out the book um, divine scripture and human understanding, a systematic theology of the Christian Bible. I know it's on Amazon. I'm sure it's at other book sales and re retail places as well. Um, give it, give it a read. Um, it was truthfully, uh, when you look at it, it's like, wow, that looks really thick. Uh, but at least this paperback one, a good portion of it is like notes, which I mean, I did try to read through some of it. Um, but it's not as daunting as it might appear when you when you grab it in your hands. Um, but it's it's well worth your time. It's a it's a great book. It's a great resource, one that I I, I think will um, benefit the church for for many years to come. So just want to say again, thank you. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or you can send us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We love your feedback, questions, episode ideas, whatever it might be. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, we hope you guys are doing well. Bye.